scripture this morning is Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. It's on page 573 in the Black Bibles. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the, later time, in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Webs. Um, I love the Webs. They've stepped into this global missions uh, decomposition um, really faithfully and have just been a part of building something that just was non-existent in our church. And we recognized, hey, we've been planted, we've been focused on the local mission. And we want to do that, but we never want the local mission to come expense, uh, the expense of the global mission, that these two things should work together. And so uh, they've been a part of forming uh, policy and uh, just the way that we think about global missions and the way that we're um, reaching out towards uh, making that a part of our church, and not just that it becomes this uh, extension, this appendage of like, oh, we're a church and we have this appendage of global missions, but in a way that it becomes a unified vision of our church, so we simply find where we can partner with uh, people that are proclaiming the message and the mercy of Jesus around the world um, as we continue to do it faithfully here in the city. And so... um, I'd love to uh, introduce myself first. I realized I didn't do that. My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are going to start an Advent series today throughout the month of December leading up to Christmas. And let's pray and we'll dive into this text. Father God, Lord, I pray um, continually, Lord, this morning and then also in the entirety of this month and season for the ability to be present right now. To shut out in the midst of a season that is fun and life-giving oftentimes, but also can be um, a reminder of times past that were uh, different than now, or uh, even just that things have ceased to be um, what they were in the past for people at this time of year. Um, But in the midst of all the fun and all the excitement, it also can be busy and a blur which is almost comically ironic, the fact that this is ultimately a season where you invite us into waiting. Invite us into reminding uh, or reminding ourselves that we ultimately are joined with the church eternal, the church uh, historical, with waiting for you to come and finish what you began, which is making all things new, removing from us the tyranny of death and sin, 
And Lord, you've come in your first time and you've removed sin for all those who trust in you. But Lord, we still then await for you to finish the work of removing suffering, removing death, removing the darkness that remains. And so Lord, um, let us enjoy what this season has to offer, but let us not put our hope in what this season has to offer. Rather, let us put our hope in a biblical view of Advent, of waiting for you to come and bring your kingdom as it's proclaimed in Isaiah 9. Lord, give us a vision of that, and let it be beautiful and move our hearts to worship you. That's a big prayer, so ultimately we ask your spirit to do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the year 1914, six months into World War I, the British and German troops were fighting along the western front between Belgium and France. And in between the two entrenched dugout uh, bunkers and, and uh, foxholes, they had a, about a length of a football field called No Man's Land. And No Man's Land was exactly what you think of it when you use the phrase. It was a place where if you were to enter into, you're defenseless, neither side could claim it for themselves, and so it was often just filled with littered bodies of people that had tried to cross from one side to the other. But in the Christmas Eve and Christmas Day of 1914, No Man's Land was filled with a completely different experience, and it was actually recounted by Alfred Anderson, a British soldier who was there. He said, I remember on that day, silence, an eerie sound of silence. All I'd heard for two months in the trenches was the hissing, cracking, and whining of bullets in, fight, in flight, machine gun fire, and distant German voices. But there was a dead silence that morning, right across the land from as far as you could see. And uh, what Alfred didn't hear was roughly 100,000 British and German soldiers along the Western Front laying down their weapons what was n and what was known as the Christmas Truce of 1914. And interestingly, what started the Christmas Truce was a candle that German soldiers had on Christmas Eve decided to decorate a Christmas tree with candles and began singing Christmas carols. And this was eventually heard by the British soldiers, who also joined in by singing their own version of Christmas carols. And then pretty soon, they began to yell Merry Christmas across the no man's land, then the front to one another. And then it really happened. What was described later was that uh, people would come out of, the, uh, of their foxholes into no man's land, Germans and Brits alike, and they came bearing gifts. They gave each other food, souvenirs like buttons and hats, and even performed joint burial services for dead comrades. At one point, they started a football match, football in the global sense. Another soldier uh, was told about, the, uh, told about a Christmas sing-along. They ended up singing together Auld Lang Syne, in which English, Scots, Irish, Prussians, and Germans joined in. It was absolutely astounding, and if I had seen it in a film, I should have sworn it was faked. But it didn't last. It was a silence that ended early that afternoon, and then the killing started again. It was described by Alfred Anderson as a short piece in the middle of a terrible war. In fact, in the four years of World War I, there's nothing like a Christmas truce that was ever experienced again. I bring that up because that might be what some of you view the Christmas season as. It is a short piece in the midst of what is otherwise still a terrible war of what life can be. 
And some of you are experiencing that very acutely, as I already perfectly mentioned, because Christmas for you is, yes, this warm season of a reminder that there are Christmases past that were better than this one, of where loved ones were together, or you'd lost somebody since last year or in past years, and this is just a constant reminder that things were not as they once were. And for others of us, we experience Christmas, and it's joyful, and it's good, and hey, we are in all the throes of all the commercials, which show all family together, and they're all laughing, and they're eating food, which people did relatively no effort to obtain and work and, and prepare, and, and apparently we're all getting a Hyundai. And after all of this happens, and we have the fresh fallen snow, and it warms our hearts, eventually January 2nd comes, and you put away decorations and you turn off lights, and things go back to the fact where you remember we still have marital problems, or I'm still lonely, or now it's just winter and seasonal depression is coming, and it's just back to work. And at the end of the day, Christmas is great, but it just seems like a short piece in the midst of a terrible war. Let me put on the front, or on the front of this series, I'm all in when it comes to a cultural Christmas. This is not me guilting you for, like, experiencing all the joys of Christmas. We have had lights up on our house since the weekend after Halloween. Not turned on. That would be sacrilege. But they were there, and the second that it hit 7 p.m. at Thanksgiving, they had been on and have been lighting the darkness of night. And I'm all down. We've got the Spotify playlist, which I continually add to. It's up to now, I don't know, 500 songs of the best Christmas songs you'd ever want to listen to, even though no one's following it. So right, I enjoy it by myself. And uh, we have a tree in our house, in our front room, that has no less than 16 strands of light. We are putting sunblock on our kids as they walk around because we are all in to enjoy the fullness of the Christmas season. And... I just want to bring up this point that if your hope is in our culture's version of Christmas, it's fun, it's beautiful at times, but it's fragile, and it's really flimsy, and it ultimately will not fulfill your soul. And when January 2nd comes, it is a reminder that, yes, that was a short piece, but now it's back to the darkness. And I might be overly dramatic for you this morning. Maybe you're just like, man, like life is good. It's not that bad and everything. And that's great. I'm glad you're here. But I just want to know, I just want to continually bring up the fact that Advent, the biblical season of Advent, is completely different from that. Because it recognizes that we belong to a God who made all that we see and much of what we don't see as a grand expression of how powerful and beautiful he is. And in that he has made man and woman in his image in a beautiful and unique way. And in that we have decided to become our own gods. And sin has entered into this world. And it is a darkness that still wrecks havoc on our world. And we experience it in so many different ways. That the world has been subjected to futility, as Paul writes in the Bible. But that in the midst of the futility, in the midst of the darkness, God has sent his son to enter into, to receive sin upon his shoulders, all sin that was not his own but was ours, and to, 
act, act as a sacrifice on our behalf, both a perfect life on our behalf and a sacrifice for our sin on our behalf. And as he does that, all who would hold on to him, all who would proclaim him, are given right standing and the right to become children of God. But he does not stay dead. He rises again to the right hand of the Father. And that one day, he's coming to finish what he started in redeeming and making all things new, putting death and decay and darkness fully in the ground. And why do I make a point of that up front? Because I want to say, as Christians, that is our common family tie. That is the essence of our identity. And that is the essence of our hope. Which hope, in English, is a really limp and pathetic word. It essentially means something to the effect of, I really wish this would happen, but have no ability to know if it will. The biblical view of hope is not like that at all. The biblical word for hope is a certain reality that is coming, and that you must continually live in light of that coming reality. To change your life in the present for a future reality that is as certain as the sunrise. And that is ultimately Advent is about, is to remind us that we're not in a short peace in the midst of a terrible war. We actually live our lives in the context of a very short war in the midst of an eternal peace. Christmas doesn't come like a light that gets flickered out and suffocated by darkness. Rather, it starts as the smallest flicker of light, but ultimately is continued to grow and continually to make the darkness flicker. And it will soon extinguish. And that's ultimately what's going on, ultimately what I want you to see in Isaiah 9. That Isaiah comes to the people of God, and he says, Hey, live into hope, a reality that is certain. And so to do that, let's look at Isaiah 9. Starting in verse 1, however, we'll need to go back to chapter 8 times to just back up some of the context of what's going on here. Because ultimately, we have probably heard verse 6. I mean, if you've been around church or just, I don't know, gotten Christmas cards in the last decade, you've heard verse 6, where it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty Peace, uh, or Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And, and, you know, this is, again, Christmas songs are made of this. These are really cool nicknames for Jesus before we open presents. And ultimately, these words, though, have a very dark context. But just like in the darker of the night, the, shi- the stars shine brighter, I want to show you that context of ultimately what's going on in Isaiah 9, which is this. The people of God have been um, divided into two people groups. And so you have the northern Israel kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the southern kingdom of Judah is where the line of David, the line that has been promised to someday bring about a Messiah that would save the people of God from all that oppresses them. It continues on the line of Judah through the king of Ahaz. And Ahaz is in the midst of a terrible crisis, an actual literal war. He has the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, two groups, come to him. And they're coming to him at terms of wanting to form a treaty with him against Assyria. 
Assyria was a country that was sweeping the world for world, world domination, and they were really effective at it. They were the most powerful armies and powerful nations of their day, and they were just basically going around and trampling everybody who got in their way and sucking up the land and the resources and adding it to their empire. And so Assyria is on the march, and they're moving towards Syria, nor, uh, the northern Israel kingdom, and Judah. And so northern Israel and Syria come to them and say, hey, we want you to team up with us to protect ourselves against Assyria. Because certainly if we don't fight together, we'll all be taken over. And oh yeah, if you don't, we'll go to war with you. So King Ahaz finds himself in this moment where he's between the threats of multiple invading armies. And he's asked of which do you side with in order to find hope. And in the midst of that question, Isaiah is sent a prophecy from God. And he says, go tell King Ahaz, you don't take sides. You don't look for hope in a kingdom or an army, no matter how strong they are and no matter how certain they would seem to be able to deliver you from evil and darkness. Rather, you hope in me. I will be your protector. I will protect you from all the armies that threaten you, that no one will get to you because I have promised to you and I am good to deliver. And then he tells Ahaz, Isaiah, directed by God, tells him, hey, ask for a sign. I don't want to just tell you this and you go on my word. Ask God for a sign and he'll give it to you. And Ahaz plays a super spiritual card by saying, like, well, who am I to ask a sign from God? To which Isaiah quickly sees the reasoning behind his comments, and he rebukes it. Because Ahaz is kind of going off of a precedent in which, at one point, when the Israelite people are traveling through the wilderness, and they're traveling through uh, a point where they have been uh, taken out of Egypt, out of slavery and captivity, or going to the promised land, all of a sudden they start thinking that God's not really going to make do because they're waiting for a long time, over 40 years, and they start being like, man, we need to test God to see if he still likes us. And God says, hey, hey, no, you don't provide hoops for me to jump through. You believe in the word and the things that I've done and shown you already. But at this point, he says, no, no, I, I want you to ask something of me. I want you to ask me to prove how much I will be faithful to you. And Ahaz doesn't want to do it, not because he's spiritual, not because he trusts God, but because he already has decided to make a treaty with Assyria. And he's already decided, hey, this is the bigger, the stronger army. I'm linking up with them. He ultimately does and ultimately becomes the undoing of their people because Assyria becomes their captors. They turn on them. But before that happens, Isaiah says, okay, he goes from the king to the people of Judah. And he says, hey, here's what your king just did. But I still want to call you into faithfulness. That God will still invite you to be faithful to him, and he will be faithful to you. Your king is trusting in other armies to protect him that won't protect him. But, but I will still hold on to you, even in the midst of captivity, in the midst of all that's going on. Just hold on to me. And what do they do? They go to mediums and necromancers which were basically ways of con connecting with the dead because they believed on some ability that like, if I could just connect with the dead, they might have some power that in the midst of a crazy, chaotic world, that this is some way to kind of get some edge of control and a sense of what's going to happen. And so, ultimately, I mean, the story ends with the people of God being taken off into exile and losing their identity for years. And, and God eventually is going to come, he's going to redeem, he's going to restore a piece of them. And that's actually the next por uh, portion of what happens in chapter 9.
where he starts talking about this idea of redeeming them. Now, this is uh, said about a time where he's already going to bring them back to their land. However, they're still not going to be free from all oppression. Now, at the point that he's talking about, they're going to be oppressed by the Roman government. But regardless, in chapter 9, it says this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So, just to give you context of what's going on here. God says, hey, even in your unfaithfulness, even in you trusting in other things, I am still going to bring light and hope in the midst of darkness. This was 700 years later that he began to prophesy about a moment where light would come to those who were in deep anguish and pain. And he talks about a region that there was no joke about. Like Zebulun and Naphtali in the land of Galilee of the nations. I mean, this was a place that was in the northern Israel portion of the kingdom and was the closest to Assyria. They felt the heat first. And not only that, they were a highway town. It was the main passage to go through that area was to go through this region. And for that reason, all armies that wanted to pass from one side to the other and the idea of conquering would pass right through this town. And often they would come and leave carnage and standard, rape, pillage, plunder as they go and as they leave. And so this was a town full of people that lived somewhere probably because they couldn't afford to live anywhere else. And as he comes to this people, God shows, hey, I want you to have hope in the midst of darkness because I want to show you I'm sovereign over the darkness. Because darkness is real. We've already made mention of it. And we've already, again, many of us could probably express the level of we feel the idea of darkness. I mean, that's in verse 2. He says, hey, this is a people who walked in darkness. Um, that literally could be translated into the death shadow. Or as we know famously from Psalm 23, the shadow of death. And the shadow of death in Psalm 23, of course, is like this valley of the shadow of death. It's like this idea that, like, man, no matter, even if I'm in the most dangerous place in the world, the dangerous part of, of uh, it, whether it be physical, de uh, physical uh, danger or spiritual danger, God is with me. But this is proclaiming, hey, this is basically the shadow of death these, where these people live. But it's, the shadow of death is not just something that some people experience. It's, again, something that has been cast over all of reality, all of this world, because of sin. And you feel the death shadow. You feel it every single time you turn on the news and there's another public shooting in another school, another concert venue, another club, uh, even in our own city as of, like, as of recent. I felt the death shadow recently when I was talking to my dad and I was talking about a second friend in two years now, a childhood friend who's committed suicide because of depression finally taking over. And you feel that. I mean, we have stories like that. We feel just the pain of the death shadow very much so being a present factor in our lives on a daily basis. And it's not just when you like find out some tragedy that's happened or some sad thing that's happened. You feel it on a daily basis. Of just we live in a world where things break, things fall apart, nothing continues to stay together. Things are continually falling in the law the second law of thermodynamics that everything that is together continually is falling apart. And so as, as we experience a very real darkness, God shows in this passage, he says, hey, this people that experienced some of the most dark situations of their day, 
I'm sovereign not around the darkness, not in spite of the darkness. I'm sovereign even over the darkness. In fact, you can see what he's talking about exactly if you flip over with me to Matthew 4. I'd love you if you could flip over to this because I think this is worth just seeing with your own eyes. Page 809 on the Black Bible. Matthew, of course, is the gospel that tells about the life of Jesus. And in Matthew 4.12, it talks about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the very beginning moment when a light breaks into darkness in the form of the Messiah who they've been waiting for. And it starts in verse 12. It says this. Now when he heard that being Jesus, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that it was spoken by the prophet, uh, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, they have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then if you go down to verse 23, it continues with Jesus' ministry there, and it says this. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among them, so that fame spread throughout all of Syria. And they brought him all the sick, and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond all the earth. Here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to get is that in the midst of living and fear of dread and things to come, that God comes into a world where people experience much darkness. And he says, hey, I'm not just sovereign around or in spite of the darkness. I am sovereign over the darkness. So that the darkness that the people experience in this region would that years later be the very place that when Jesus comes in, he says, I'm going to start a light right here in the darkest place. Not only so that you experience it, but that Syria experiences it. That, that this place where all this major highway of where life is just going to start pouring out of is going to be an easy traveled road and people are going to start coming in to see that a light of a Savior has dawned in one of the darkest places. That God was doing something even 700 years ago in this place. And he said, hey, I'm going to use that darkness and I'm going to use it in such a way to bring about the most beautiful light that would ever shine and that is continuing to bring forth the light emitting into the darkness now. And, and I just want to say, like, I know then there's this point where we can say, okay, if that's true, that God is sovereign over the darkness, then did, does he bring on the darkness? Like, does he create the darkness? And the Bible is very clear. God does not create the darkness. And that even as he is sovereign over it, that it is very much so brought on by sin. It's brought on by all these things. But the Bible is going to take great pains to show you that no matter what happens, if all the things that you fear right now if they come to pass or not, that God is still in control and that he is still even utilizing darkness at times to bring about beauty, to bring about restoration of disease and, and death and the demonic into his world. And he's bringing that into you. And, and 
you can say like, okay, that's great, Kent. That's a really good like preacherly sleight of hand, like the sense of like, well, God didn't create the da- uh, darkness, and He just uses it, and He's just using it to bring beauty. But like, how does that all make sense? I don't know. That's really mysterious, and people have been peering into that question for a really long time, and I have no uh, pretense that I can solve that for you today. But here's why I know it's true. Here's why I trust God in it. Because he did not spare himself from the darkness. That when Jesus enters into this world and starts healing people, he entered into a, as a child, as we're going to see here in a moment, in a child of peasants, poor peasants. And not only that, when he entered into this world, immediately a death sentence was proclaimed over his life because the current king heard that this new king of the Jews was born and he didn't like that. So he says, hey, kill all the babies, the male babies under two. And so his parents have to actually flee, become exiles, go to e- or become refugees, and, and then become refugees in Egypt, outside of their foreign, or becoming you know, strangers in a foreign land. And then as they come back, then he lives this life of homelessness and continual um, mounting against him, this opposition that eventually would kill him for his message of the kingdom coming to those who would accept it. And so you have God of the universe not sparing himself from the darkness and that out of the darkest moment of human history, I mean, if you get the fact that the night before he dies, Jesus is sweating blood. What is so dark about all of the sin of the world placed upon God that it makes God stagger back and sweat blood? But as the darkest moment of human history happens, out of it, out of that darkness, God engineers the way that redemption would enter into the entire world. And he does that on the cross, and he does that right here in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He says, hey, in the midst of all the darkness in this world, I'm sovereign over it, and I'm engineering it in such a way that it's actually going to do my will and create beauty out of death. And so let me just pause here for a moment just to like, kind of bring this into our life and our time right now. It means that in the darkness or the suffering or the pain or just the waiting that you are experiencing right now, that God is actually using that to form something in you. This was preached on a few weeks back when we did our just, you know, suffering helps us change. But it's actually waiting and patiently hoping in God that is going to be doing much of the work of forming you and shaping you into what God would have for you into the life and life to the full. And let's just call it what it is. We as a culture hate waiting. It's not anything I have to, like, you know, illustrate with, like, you know, I don't know, smartphones or microwaves or whatever. I mean, it's just the fact that I recently just heard someone talk about hurry sickness. And hurry sickness, they said, here's a couple ways to just deduce if you had hurry sickness. One was if you're at the grocery store and you commonly look at all of the aisles or all of the uh, checkout lanes, and if one's moving faster, you'll switch lanes to save a few minutes which I checked the box. And then it also continues to go on to if you are driving and if you are continually switching lanes at every stoplight, so you'll be in the shortest lane, but that is also an indicator of having hurry sickness. And it's just a sense of, of we hate to wait. We hate things that are going to take time. But the problem is that the Bible, Advent itself, invites us into a process of waiting. That all throughout the scriptures, God is going to use the element of waiting to form his people. That when Israel's in Egypt under slavery, they're enslaved for 430 years. 
almost twice the length that America has been a nation. That when they are going to the promised land, they are wandering for 40 years. That from the moment this prophecy is given that, hey, light's going to come and break into the darkness, they wait for another 700 years. And now God has invited us into the same process in our lives and then waiting for now over 2,000 years for God to come and make all things new. And, but here's the thing about waiting again. You wouldn't want to stop it before it has its full effect. Like I think about some of the things, some of the instances of life where you're like, it's the hardest to wait. And one of them, um, for myself at least, was the arrival of our firstborn child. And so I'm, right now we're waiting on baby four. I hardly remember that that puppy's cooking. And, uh, but baby number one, it's like you're, getting all the, you're doing all the showers and you're getting all the gifts and you're, you know, you're just continually reminded by all these little videos that pop up to tell you that your baby has grown from like the size of an acorn to a kumquat or something. And, and you're just constantly reminded of like this baby is growing and this baby is coming. And then you get to third trimester and mama wants baby out. And like everyone is just waiting and just wants the time to come faster. But here's what you don't want. You don't want the baby to come early. And why? Because we all know that there's very important formation that's happening of the child in the midst of the waiting. That for the child to come early, if we were to get what we wished for, and it to end before it was due, that there actually, I mean, that happens, and there's great risk to the health and the formation of the child. And they got me thinking this week as I thought about that illustration, I thought about that idea that what if there's things that God is having you wait through right now and having you develop and sit in, in the darkness, in the suffering, in some level of, of you wanting this thing to stop and go away, that Pastor uh, New York, named Tim Kelly, often says, and I've never gotten over this phrase, that if you could see all that God saw, if you knew everything that God knew, you would beg him not to stop the waiting. You would beg him to not stop it before it was due. Because it's forming something in us. And that God is sovereign over all the darkness in this world. And he is never late, by the way. I have this picture of God of just like, well, he's all powerful and so he can show up as late as he wants and still make it happen. But the Bible says that no, at just the right time, Christ enters into the world and dies for the sin of the world. That's a phrase that basically means at exactly the moment, the fullness of time, when it was the perfect moment that Christ comes. Because God is not late. And so that as he waits, no matter the period, he knows, hey, there's something to be happening in this waiting. There's something happening in, in the people of Zebulun and Naphtali. There's something happening uh, in just all of the world as I continue to let it wait in the midst of this. And there's something happening in you that God is not sparing you from because he loves you too much. It's something that I'm continually reminding myself as I'm just like praying for to change and praying for certain things. I mean, I, I think I can have the heart to just like say, God, I want this to change. I, I want this to move. But, but then I can also be encouraged that if it doesn't, that God is not late and he has not been unfaithful to me. And so God is sovereign in the midst of darkness. That's why we hope in him. But then we also hope in him because we get a strong vision of his plan. You see this in the rest of the text, starting in verse 3. 
He says this, hey, you have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. First thing I want you to notice about these three verses, that they're they are all in past tense, even though these have not yet happened. These are all future prophecy, ultimately, that we are waiting for to be fulfilled, that God would come and do all these things. The reason they're in past tense is because this is what is called the prophetic perfect tense. It is a prophecy that is said about the future, that is stated, about the pa- stated in past tense because it is so certain that it will be accomplished. Because I remind you, the definition of hope in the Bible is not, I hope this happens, but rather, it is a certain reality that is coming, and the job of us is to align ourselves to live in light of that reality and to find our hope in it. And what do we find our hope in what's coming? That simply the vision of, of this that would come on in the midst of darkness, in the midst of the darkness we experience now and the experience then, is that... Uh, we, uh, he says he's going to multiply the nations and increase its joy and rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest and as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Two biggest days in the life of an agrarian culture is the harvest. We've been working, enduring, waiting, hoping things would pop up, and now they do. Hoping in the English sense, not in the biblical sense. And uh, then you have the moment of when you divide spoil after a battle because you get all these goods and all these things that were not yours and now are just divided amongst everyone. And I thought to myself... What spoil is, he, is God talking about that's being divided? What enemy has he defeated? And I realize, of course, what he's talking about is, yes, God's saying to the people, hey, I, I'm going to defeat your enemies here in an earthly sense. That's true. But I'm also defeating death. And that the spoil that's going to be returned and divided up amongst us is what death has taken from us. The Bible says at one point that God is going to restore all the years that the locusts have eaten, which is a reference to often locusts would come and eat your crops and damage them. And he says, hey, all of that, that that death and sin has been broken down for years, everything that went wrong in your life, all those things that went uh, busted up by sin, God's going to return that when he defeats death and takes everything that he took from us. So he's going to take the years that were swallowed up by disease or, or the relationships that were broken down. I mean, there's a po- point at the end of The Lord of the Rings where in which one of the characters, after this great battle that has now ended the threat of the enemy and brought peace in their land, all of a sudden they start looking around. All these people, all these characters that had died earlier in the book start coming back. And one of the characters looks around and says and asks just simply up to the heavens, are all sad things coming untrue? And that's ultimately what the Bible's talking about. He says, hey, when Jesus defeats death, ultimately, all that death has taken from you and me will be returned. There's nothing we've lost that we will not experience, that our hope is that certain. And not only that, but then he says in verse 4, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He's talking about just like slavery being ended, which of course, like, we always kind of want to put in like, well, that's in the past and the historical, but of course, you know, if you take any sense of just the knowledge of like global statistics, that there's more current slavery in the world today than there's ever been in human history. A lot of it happening in sex trafficking and and the slave trade in those ways. And it's such an insidious thing that so many of you probably are passionately doing things to try to work against, but the 
fact is, it's just like, it, it can be so slippery. It, people have often wondered, like, is this ever really going to end? And Isaiah 9.5 says that all yokes will be broken and all those who are in slavery will one day be freed. And yes, there is a waiting. Yes, there is a need to go and to fight and to bring people out of slavery now. But we do it with the hope that we are only joining God in the plan that he will one day break every single yoke. And we just get to be a part of them as God's people in breaking some of them early. And so as slavery is looking to be on the rails, and then in verse 5, every boot for the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That should be a Christmas card verse this year. It's talking about that all things that are used to bring upon death become a source of life. That the boots that were used to walk across the land to come and bring an invading army and the garments that were used to sop up blood will be thrown into a fire to keep people warm and to cook food. Because everything that brought death will now be turned into something that brings life. The vision of what God has in store, the certain reality that we are hoping for is how you continue to hold on to hope and how Isaiah encourages this, the people of God to hold on to hope in the midst of still very much so experiencing trying times. And so there's a hope in the sovereignty of God and there's a hope into the, the proclamation, the proclaimed vision of God. And then there's also simply just hope in the presence of God. Hope in the fact that it says in verse 6, For unto us a son is given, a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over the kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Because if you're tracking along what I'm saying right now, and if you're a thinking person, you're sitting here saying like, okay, I get what you're saying, holding on to hope in the midst of darkness because God's sovereignly doing something and awaiting in me, and, and, and yes, there's this future vision, but the fact is, is we have been waiting for that for 2,000 years. And this vision came 700 years before it was fulfilled. All these people were dead. And so you start thinking through the sense of like, okay, the waiting that God is using to shape in me might outlast me. And it's true, it, it very much so will. I, I don't know how God is going to use whatever situation I'm poking on right now in your life. I don't know if you'll see the end of it. I don't know if you'll have the fulfillment here on earth like we all want, or if we are all waiting for the future vision. But ultimately... We are given the presence of Christ in this moment. And that is not a consolation prize. I had a friend recently as I was just talking and just talking about things that I was just wrestling with and struggling with. And, and, and I was just saying to him, like, it's really tough right now because it's like I want all these things more than I want God in this moment, if I'm honest. And he looked at me and he said something. He said to me several times and he just said that phrase. He said, hey, Kent... Jesus is no consolation prize. You might not get all those other things you want right now, but you have Christ. And he's described as wonderful counselor, one who has experienced all that we have and is as near to us as a counselor, walking alongside us, experiencing life with us. He's mighty God. 
He is the existential ache in our souls that we're longing for. The reason that I say regularly you go to trips to mountains or oceans or concerts, the reason that you want to experience something bigger than yourself is because you are made to experience something bigger than yourself. You are meant to experience God. You are meant to experience His presence and His power in your life. He's everlasting Father. He cares for us as his children. He says, I will be near to you. I will be walking alongside you. And there's just something, the fact of just being in the presence of one who loves you and has the best mind out for you that will allow you to then continue on when you persist in darkness and in pain. We had an elder retreat this week, and all the elders from all our congregations got together. And there was all, at the beginning, we just walked, talked about what's going on in our personal lives, and everybody was sharing just really hard situations. But then all of us, like, at the end of it, we're saying like, hey, like we're still in tough situations right now, but it's been made lighter just by being present together. If that's true about being together with close friends and brothers that are walking alongside me, how much more true is that of an everlasting father who has been the one who made my soul to find its peace in him? And the Prince of Peace. He's going to continue to push things forward, not in violence and using his strength by pushing forward brute force, but in peace. How much stronger is that? We can't even imagine a world where you push forward a kingdom without violence. We can only imagine the sense of, of, of strong hatedness. But, you know, he says, you know, I'm going to push forward my kingdom not by bes- destroying my enemies, but by making them into my family. And that's ultimately what happens on the cross. The cross and and what we celebrate each week is that we all are enemies of God because of the sin and the darkness that we have brought into this world and that the sin that we're wading through is very much so our doing. But Jesus does not bring violence upon his enemies. Rather, he brings uh, a life-giving invitation into becoming him to his family by taking death and sin. He does use violence, but he uses it against his true enemies, Satan, death, and sin, evil itself. And he came to destroy that. Yes, he's the prince of peace, but he came with a sword. And he came to destroy what plagued uh, plagued against us, death and sin, so that now his enemies could become his family. And so we hold on to the fact that I don't know what's going on in the present, and I don't know when it will end. For me, for you, for any of us. I don't know when Jesus will come and make all things fully new. But in the presentness, we have the presence of Christ. And I invite you to hold on to that truth simply in this moment by coming forward and taking communion with us if you're a Christian. If you believe these things, if you're trying to hold on to the hope of God, if you are having God hold on to you and and holding on to his presence in the midst of no matter good situations, bad situations, wherever you're in right now, if you're holding on to that truth, then I invite you to come forward, take a piece of the bread, and dip it in the cup. That's the way we do communion here, and you can do that in stations around the room, including a gluten-free station up here at the front, or right your left. I say, as I say every week, if you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. But don't come and take this meal. Rather, I would ask you to wrestle with what you're hoping in and ask yourself if that what you're hoping in will provide for you any sense of comfort when the darkness starts to overtake your soul. Because it comes for all of us at different times. And if you experience the darkness that's still very much so in the world, is what you're hoping in enough to provide you hope to move through that?
Uh, we invite you to pursue hope in Christ, pursue hope in the one who is saying, I'm here, I'm with you now, and I'm going to come and I'm going to take this darkness eventually all away. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray for you to make us a people that have a steadfast hope in you. And God, I'm just thought, I just think about all of the ways that um, I just have talked with a lot of people here and faces that I see right now and, and situations that I see where I just I know there's a lot of feeling of shaky hands and shaky legs and just feeling like, man, I don't know if I can hold up in the midst of darkness right now and in the midst of what's going on. And I just pray that you would give us a view into Advent this year that would go beyond just, oh man, it's happy and it's fun right now and snow fills the world and it's this Christmas spirit in the air, whatever that means. But rather, God's spirit is in us to pursue endurance and to hold on to you and to not let you go and to not supplement you with some other thing that we think is going to save us. And Lord, give us souls that are clung tightly to you, letting go of everything else. Lord, because you're the only thing that endures through this darkness. You are the light that sparks and has made the darkness start to fade and to start to shudder. Lord, you are the one who creates this short war into an eternal peace. I pray that we would hold on to that. In Jesus' name, amen.